Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the faceless thing, by Edward D. Hoke. This is first published in Magazine of Horror, November 1963. Magazine of Horror was, uh, I believe it was from the Health and Knowledge Company, which is a pretty funny <laughs> name. Um, <laughs> yeah, Health and Knowledge. Um, and it's a great source, terrific source for uh, reprint uh, stories that are the ones that we come to think of as, you know, the classics. Uh, I can't remember. Oh, Donald uh, Robert A. Lowndes was the editor. That's right. Um, and he picked out a ton of stories that you know were good. And so in this issue, you see the Red Room by H. G. Wells, which is a great story. Uh, Frank Belknap Longs the or Belknap Longs the Space Eaters. There's an Ambrose Bierce in here. Uh, uh, Robert Lowndes put his own story in as well. Donald A. Walheim's got a new one, and uh, somebody named Edward D. Hoke, um, who I was very familiar with as a uh, short story writer of detective and crime, but he's not that well known as a SF author or horror author. But he did write uh, nearly a thousand short stories, and uh, if you can write that many, probably there's something going on with you that is positive, especially if they're getting published. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, this is fairly early in his career. I think he um, he lived until 2008. Uh, he was born in 1930. So, you know, it's 1963. It's, it's, he's a man, but his <laughs> career goes on a ways. Indeed. I'd never heard of this fellow before. Uh, I was delighted when I did a little digging around. Turns out that, you know, the mystery writers of America have grand masters, the science fiction and fantasy writers of America mm -hmm. have grand masters and so on. This fellow, Edward Hogg, Hodge, H-O-C-H, was the very first writer to become a grand master based on short fiction mm -hmm. rather than novels. This guy really can write, and yes. I must say, I, I liked this story very much. Uh, I liked it even better on second reading. Yeah, it's 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 got a problem that makes me want to talk about it. <laughs> its problem is it's it doesn't tell you what it's doing. It's in a magazine called the Magazine of Horror and Strange Stories, but um, it's so ambiguous. And yet it's so suggestive. And I've I've looked around to see what people have said about this story. Um, I think so, somebody thinks it's overwritten. Other people think it's really good, but they don't, they can't put their finger on it. And they have some theories. I think that what he's doing here is very effective. Uh, and yet it's hard to say exactly what happens in the text so if you wouldn't uh, mind i'd love you to read it for us and then maybe we can together reason our way into bringing out what actually happened in it my pleasure the faceless thing 
sunset. Golden flaming clouds draped over distant canyons, barely seen in the dusk of the dying day. Farmland gone to rot, fields in the foreground given over wildly to the running of the rabbit and the woodchuck. The farmhouse gray and paint peeled, sleeping possibly, but more likely dead, needing burial. It hadn't changed much in all those years. It hadn't changed only died. He parked the car and got out, taking it all in with eyes still intent and quick for all their years. Somehow he hadn't really thought it would still be standing. Farmhouses that were near collapse 50 years ago shouldn't still be standing, not when all the people, his mother and father and aunt and the rest, were all long in their graves. He was an old man, had been an old man almost as long as he could remember. Youth to him was only memories of this farm so many years before, romping in the hay with his little sister at his side, swinging from the barn ropes, exploring endless dark depths out beyond the last field. After that, he was old. Through misty college days and marriage to a woman he hadn't loved, through a business and political career that carried him around the world, and never once in all those years had he journeyed back to this place, this farmhouse now given over to the weeds and insects. They were all dead. There was no reason to come back, no reason at all, except the memory of the ooze. A childhood memory, a memory buried with the years, forgotten sometimes, but always there, crowded into its own little space in his mind, was ready to confront him and startle him with its vividness. The ooze was a place beyond the last field where water always collected in the springtime and after a storm, water running over dirt and clay and rock, merging with the soil until there was nothing underfoot but a black ooze to rise above your boots. He'd followed the stream, rushing with storm water, followed it to the place where it cut into the side of the hill. It was the memory of the tunnel, really, that had brought him back, the dark tunnel leading nowhere, gurgling with rain-fed water, barely large enough for him to fit through, a tunnel floored with unseen ooze, peopled by unknown danger. That was a place for every boy. Had he only been 10 that day? Certainly he'd been no more than 11, leading the way while his nine-year-old sister followed this way. Be careful of the mud. She'd been afraid of the dark, afraid of what they might find there, but he'd called encouragement to her. After all, what could there be in all this ooze to hurt them? How many years? Fifty? What is it, buddy? She'd always called him buddy. What is it, buddy? Only darkness in a place maybe darker than dark, with a half-formed shadow rising from the ooze. He'd brought along his father's old lantern, and he fumbled to light it. Buddy, she screamed just once, and in the flare of the match, she'd seen the thing, great and hairy and covered with ooze, something that lived in the darkness here, something that hated the light in that terrifying instant. It had reached out for his little sister and pulled her into the ooze. 
that was the memory, a memory that came to him sometimes only at night. It had pursued him down the years like a fabled hound, coming to him, reminding him when all was well with the world. It was like a personal demon sent from Hades to torture him. He'd never told anyone about that thing in the ooze, not even his mother. They cried and carried on when his sister was found the next day, and they'd said she drowned. He was not one to say differently. And the years had passed. For a time during his high school days, he read the local papers searching for some word of the thing, some veiled news that it had come out of the forgotten cavern. But it never did. It liked the dark and damp too much. And of course, no one else ever ventured into the stream bed. That was a pursuit only for the very young and very foolish. By the time he was 20, the memory was fading, merging with other thoughts, other goals, until at times he thought it was only a child's dream. But then at night, it would come again in all its vividness, and the thing in the ooze would beckon him. A long life, long and crowded, one night he tried to tell his wife about it, but she wouldn't listen. That was the night he realized how little he'd ever loved her. Perhaps he'd only married her because in a certain light, she reminded him of that sister of his youth. But the love that sometimes comes later came not at all to the two of them. She was gone now, like his youth, like his family and friends. There was only this memory remaining, the memory of a thing in the ooze. Now the weeds were tall, beating against his legs, stirring nameless insects to flight with every step. He pressed a handkerchief against his brow, sponging the sweat that was forming there. Would the dark place still be there, or had 50 years of rain and dirt sealed it forever? Hello there, a voice called out. It was an old voice, barely carrying with the breeze. He turned and saw someone on the porch of the deserted farmhouse, an old woman, ancient and wrinkled. Do I know you? he asked, moving closer. You may, she answered. You're Buddy, aren't you? My, how old I've gotten. I used to live at the next farm when you were just a boy. I was young then myself. I remember you. Oh, Mrs. The name escaped him, but it wasn't important. Why did you come back, buddy? Why after all these years? He was an old man. Was it necessary to explain his actions to this woman from the past? I just wanted to see the place, he answered. Memories, you know. Bitter memories. Your little sister died here, did she not? The old woman should have been dead. Should have been dead and in her grave long ago. He paused in the shade of the porch roof. She died here, yes, but that was 50 years ago. How old we grow, how ancient. Is that why you returned? In a way, I wanted to see the spot. Ah, the little brook back there beyond the last field. Let me walk that way with you. These old legs need exercise. Do you live here, he asked, wanting to escape her now, but knowing not how. No, still down the road, all alone now. Are you all alone, too? I suppose so. The high grass made walking difficult. You know what they all said at the time, don't you? They all said you were fooling around like you always did and pushed her into the water. There was a pain in his chest from breathing so hard. He was an old man. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that? What does it matter? She answered. After all these 50 years, what does it matter? Would you believe me? He began, then hesitated into silence. Of course, she wouldn't believe him. But he had to tell now. Would you believe me if I told you what happened? She was a very old woman, and he panted to keep up even his slope. She was a very old woman, and she panted to keep up even his slow pace. She was ancient even to his old eyes, even in his world where now everyone was old. I would believe you, she said. There was something in the ooze. Call it a monster, a demon, if you want. I saw it in the light of a match, and I can remember it as if it were yesterday. It took her. Perhaps, she said. You don't believe me. I said I would. This sun is hot today, even at twilight. It will be gone soon. I hate to hurry, you old woman, but I must reach the stream before dark. The last field is in sight. Yes, it was in sight. But how would he ever fit through that small opening? How would he face the thing, even if by some miracle it still waited there in the ooze? Fifty years was a long, long time. Wait here, he said as they reached the little stream at last. It hadn't changed much, not really. You won't find it. He lowered his aged body into the bed of the stream, feeling once again the familiar forgotten ooze closing over his shoes. No one has to know, she called after him. Even if there was something, that was 50 years ago. But he went on. To the place where the water vanished into the rock, he held his breath and groped for the little flashlight in his pocket. Then he ducked his head and followed the water into the black. It was steamy here, steamy and hot, with a sweat of the earth. He flipped on the flashlight with trembling hands and followed its narrow beam with his eyes. The place was almost like a room in the side of the hill, a room perhaps seven feet high, with a floor of mud and ooze that seemed almost to bubble as he watched. Come on, he said softly, almost to himself. I know you're there. You've got to be there. And then he saw it, rising slowly from the ooze, a shapeless thing without a face, a thing that moved so slowly it might have been dead. An old, very old thing. For a long time he watched it, unable to move, unable to cry out. And even as he watched, the thing settled back slowly into the ooze as if even this small exertion had tired it rest he said very quietly we are all so old now and then he made his way back out of the cave along the stream and finally pulled himself from the clinging ooze the ancient woman was still waiting on the bank with fireflies playing about her in the dusk did you find anything? She asked him. Nothing, he answered. Fifty years is a long time. You shouldn't have come back. He sighed and fell into step beside her. It was something I had to do. Come up to my house if you want. 
I can make you a bit of tea. His breath was coming better now, and the distance back to the farmhouse seemed shorter than he'd remembered. I think I'd like that, he said. Wow. I, um, I, I have new theories now, just in hearing it yet again, hearing you, you perform it for us. Um, wow. Really good writing. Um, I was just thinking, I know another author who we've covered quite a bit on this podcast who could have written this, um, and that would be David H. Keller. Can you see that? <laughs> yes, but I will say no more because I don't want to stop you now that you've had a revelation. Go well, for it, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, David H. Keller is very good at the the psychological. This is a psychological story more than a horror story. Uh, or maybe it's a psychological horror story. But uh, one way of reading it, I think, uh, is that this is a um, this is a man trying to and i just made that note he's trying to convince himself of something uh, in, in his memory but also to forgive himself for something that he may have done um there was a theory uh somebody wrote about maybe it was on goodreads um about the this old woman mrs blank um being the sister um, maybe as a ghost, perhaps. Um, I think there's some problems with this, but it's definitely in there. I mean, she knows his name, his buddy. She called him buddy. The sister called him buddy. His wife looks like, his wife now dead, looked like, or uh, at least, you know, a loveless marriage, looked from some angles like his sister. This story is full of reflection like literal reflections all over the place. Um, in fact, the language is like this. In the second paragraph, it hadn't changed much in all those years. It hadn't changed. It's this repetition. Next paragraph over, there's no repetition. But the fourth paragraph, he was an old man, had been an old man. Right? It's, it's, that, it's a reflection. So it's getting us to reflect, and it happens again and again. What is it, buddy? She always asked him, but she always called him buddy. What is it, buddy? So this this echoing is his memory echoing of what happened. He doesn't know what happened in a certain sense. And I think we can't know what happened in a certain sense. But his breathing gets better at the end. He breathes easier. And that's a metaphor as well as an actual thing that happens. Story set at sunset. There's so much going on in here that makes it just really good at what it's doing. I agree. Keller, of course, prided himself on being the first actual psychiatrist to write for the pulps. And uh, not that he was the first medical doctor with psychological insight to write for the pulps. We think of, for instance, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. Um but right for these pulps that started out in the 20th century and uh, were pretty pulpy. Mm -hmm. uh, Keller prided himself. I and you, I know uh, from our discussion of Keller, uh, we kind of like his writing. Mm -hmm. But the general uh, rep is that uh, his writing is not as good as his ideas. And frankly, I have to say that stylistically, 
although you and I both uh, think well of Keller, even as a stylist, I think this is much better than that. I agree. I think this is superb. I, I tried to catch the, the the flavor of that ooze. That mm-hmm. word is chosen quite carefully. The mm-hmm. sense of something coming up at you from from you know not where and being utterly shapeless. That word occurs 11 times in this story. Mm-hmm. 11 times out of 2,000 words. That's It's clearly prominent and it's slow. The, mm-hmm. the notion of oldness. He is old even in college. We're told, if you read this with care, he went out to explore beyond the last field. Right. Well, what a metaphor that is. It is. And as soon as he returned from that from that moment on, he's old. It becomes the very next sentence. He's old as soon as he returned from exploring. There's a very easy way to read this story, um, and it doesn't get said at all. And it is indeed the psychological way, which is why I think your connection with Keller is spot on. Let us suppose 11-year-old nameless fellow loves to fool around a lot, as is well known in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He's rather a mischievous and uh, and chaotic boy. And he encourages his frightened sister into the, uh, into the cave, mm-hmm. where he tries to frighten her. And she gasps and falls down into the water. And in the darkness, she drowns before he can do anything about it. In his mind, he makes up a monster that can't have a face because the face would be his own. Yep. He makes up a monster to explain how he lost her, he who should have been protecting her, he who should have been her buddy. And he keeps through the years trying to reconnect with her, even to marrying a woman mm-hmm. whose eyes remind him of her, even to hearing that term buddy in his memories He can't go back. He can never go back. He's dead because he died with his sister in some metaphoric way and in some spiritual way. There are no children. There are no there's no family at all. But when he goes back to a farmland, a place that's supposed to create growth, an old woman recognizes him as buddy. Mm -hmm. It's not his sister. That's what he was known as in those days. In that place, he says she's so old, she should have been dead by now. Mm-hmm. Hawk is giving us clues. We know that Buddy was 10 or at most 11 when this happened. And we know that this is 50 years later. Mm-hmm. In 1963, when this was published, a 61 year old man, unless he is radically debilitated by some terrible wasting disease, is not old for him to claim that everything is old, that all these people are gone, that that woman who, let's face it, if she was a young wife, when he was 11, she might be 10 years older than he, that she was 71 in 1963. That didn't make her horribly old. He's concocted her as older than she is. And in fact, he is feeling himself older than he is at 61 years old. He can walk comparatively briskly through the high grass at 71 years old or 75. She doesn't walk quite as briskly. He uses this as a as a demonstration that she's old, that she should be dead because he's old. 
He's not old at all. But what happens when he comes out? What what happens when he goes in, which many psychiatrists would look at as a womb return metaphor. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. He sees this thing. He calls it. It's not there. He says, come out. I know you're there. And it starts to ooze up again. But then it subsides. As in standard Freudian analysis, he's confronted the thing, realized that it is no longer harmful, and he puts it aside. He comes back out, a rebirth into the world, and someone who knows that he should be called buddy. Someone who's a missus, that is to say, potentially a mother who is not going to act as if he lost her child because as this missus says it was 50 years ago so it doesn't matter anymore she offers him something to perk him up she offers him tea his breath is coming better now and suddenly the distance to the farmhouse is shorter as it is when you go back to the haunts of your youth as an adult i think i'd like that he said He can finally make a connection. This is a story of healing from what I would assume was a horrible accident that everyone else attributed to simple drowning. But he always felt guilt because she wouldn't have drowned if he hadn't been so obstreperous. There's, um, There's a curious thing that happens. Uh, when he goes into the image, just read that section again. And then he saw it rising slowly from the ooze, a shapeless thing without a face, a thing that moved so slowly it might have been dead. An old, very old thing. For a long time he watched it, unable to move, unable to cry out. This is him reliving his whole life, right? He watched it, unable to move, unable to cry out. And even as he watched it, the thing settled back into the ooze as if even this small exertion had tired it. Rest, he said, very quietly now. We are all so old. We we think he's going there to confront this thing that killed his sister. See if it's still there and kill it. When it comes out, it comes out very tired. And what does he say? Not, I'm going to kill you. He says, rest. And that it's in this last field. And then he makes his way out. And the woman asks him, did you find anything? She asked. Nothing, he answered. Technically, it's not a lie. If it's, <laughs> if it's all psychological. But she says, 50 years is a long time. You shouldn't have come back. Why is she saying that? He sighed and fell into step beside her. It was something I had to do. Come up to my house if you want. I can make you a bit of tea. I'm not even sure that she's even there. I think that it's entirely possible that this is a conversation he's having with himself. This old woman, he imagines, who happens to be on the stoop of his old farmhouse. Everyone he knows, whoever lived there, is dead. His, everything around him is dead. It's literally sunset. And she says, come, I'm going to make you feel better. 
it's it, it could be read in a, a number of ways, but she seems to have knowledge of him from the you know, more than he has knowledge. She she asks him questions that help him process. It's very, very much a psychological story. And going right back to the title, the faceless thing. Can't put a face to that name, buddy. Mm. Horrible. Wonderful. Indeed. One of the things that I, I find noteworthy is that on first reading, it seems, because it has a third-person narrator, it seems as if um, this is a horror story, that there really is a monster, and so on. Um, but when you get done reading it that first time, and realize that there's not nearly as much about the monstrosity as there is about the feeling of of death and fear and disaffection for a lifetime, it becomes possible to think of it as a psychological story. And then on rereading it, what we're getting is not a third-person narrator telling us what is objectively the case, but what we're getting is the self-reflection of the protagonist who is trying to remember what things were like then. And it makes me think that when that woman says, you shouldn't have come back. What could be understood is that a part of him is feeling guilty that he's been able to lay the monster to rest. Yes. Because after all, he did contribute to his sister's death and he's letting himself off the hook. So that if we read it, if he were to keep narrating his story, he would have to admit that it was unreasonable, immoral, to let go of his sister that way. Mm. So I think I agree with you. It's easy to see that farm woman as another projection. It's wonderful that the story has just the same words, and it becomes two or maybe on the third reading, three different stories mm. about which... There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.